Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. John chapter 17, verses 18 to 23. reads like this. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so that they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May, be they, may they be brought in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have, been, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The real reason we're all gathered here together as a number of churches and campus ministries is because none of your other pastors wanted to preach a Good Friday sermon. So they asked me to do it, and here we are. But of course, I'm kidding. Um, the real reason we're here together today is because I believe this is one of the most beautiful and honest expressions of honoring Christ for what he did on the cross that we can imagine. I'm glad we're doing this, and in large part, at least from the human side of things, we're here because Pastor Leo made a suggestion, an anointed one, at the right time, in the right room, to the right men, and God moved, and it just clicked, and here we are. And we're drawing to the end of Passion Week, and I know that a lot of you probably spent the day in reflection. For some of you, you might have started with an early morning prayer service, so it's been a long day already. Maybe you've been fasting and praying, and so you've spent the whole day and probably this whole week in all kinds of activities designed to get your heart and mind in the right place to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. And so when you come to Good Friday service, this is the culmination of a week-long effort for many of us. And for some, it even began on Ash Wednesday, and for 40 days of Lent, we've been pushing hard to identify with the suffering. So there's a great expectation that we will see bloody images and think of the suffering and crucifixion. And I don't ever want to shortchange that. I think that is something we have to behold, especially when we don't want to look at it. That is the cost, the terrible cost for our salvation. But I'm not going to preach about that tonight. And the reason I'm not going to preach about that is not because you've been there and done that. You will never, ever grow weary of dwelling on the crucifixion of Christ. But I think it would be a criminal offense if I had this many churches gathered and this many campus groups and somehow through this sermon I lowered a little individual tube that connected you to the cross of Jesus and it was all about just you and Jesus and let me push aside all these other people in this room and let it just be about me and Christ. I think that would really dishonor the spirit of what Christ wanted when he would be remembered by his followers. I know that's a common inclination of our hearts, is to make Good Friday an intensely personal experience, but I want you to consider for a moment, look around you, how many different bodies of Christ are represented in the real theological truth that we are in fact one body of Christ. So I think it's fitting this evening that I I have us look here at John chapter 17. And this is not some 
disconnected passage that has nothing to do with the passion. It was, in fact, a part of the intense prayer which Jesus prayed on the eve of his crucifixion. And you might have come to this service wondering, what's supposed to happen here tonight? How am I supposed to leave here feeling? What should I think? Well, when you look at Jesus' prayer on the eve of his crucifixion, as he and God are just wrestling and duking it out, and he's agonizing over the the things he would have to endure the following day, doesn't it stand to reason that seeing what he was thinking about, seeing what was weighing heavily on his heart, really ought to guide the way that we as Christians respond to the amazing truth of the crucifixion? So I don't want to spend the whole night here. It's going to be a pretty quick message. I don't have a whole lot of points to make, but I want to walk us through this passage and point out a couple very important things. And the first thing I see here is that we are actually sent people. And we are a sent people because Jesus was a sent Savior. He, he emphasizes that in the beginning. And if you want to just leave, the, if you guys wouldn't mind leaving the passage up the whole time I'm speaking... Um, He emphasizes that just as he was sent, we also who believe in him are being sent. That's important because Jesus didn't phone it in. He didn't dial in salvation long distance. He went from glory to come among us. It was a very, very lengthy journey, not simply in light years, but in the amazing relational distance he had across, the amazing existential distance he had across just to be here with us. Our salvation begins with somebody making a journey that was intensely costly and uncomfortable and sacrificial. Way before he ever hung on a cross, Jesus made an amazing sacrifice just to be sent in obedience to the Father. And so it's important that on Good Friday we remember that in the same way that we have a Savior sent to us, we are always going to be a people sent to the world. If the church ever forgets that, we completely lose the purpose of our being. It it never ceases to amaze me as a pastor how quickly the church of Jesus Christ can go from being a means to an end in itself. How quickly we go from we are the body of Christ to do something for Him and it, it so quickly degenerates. And I really choose that word intentionally. It degenerates into this thing where we just keep trying to survive year after year, growing bigger and getting more polished. You know, the cross reminds us what we were saved from, but it also reminds us what we were saved for. Let me give you a few statistics that I hope will wake you up. In Chicagoland, there are 44 blockbuster stores. There's 190, I'm sorry, 44 Best Buy stores. 197 blockbuster stores and 330 McDonald's stores. It's not that many, but you think about how pervasive these things are in your life. Do you know that at the same time there are over 5,000 churches in the Chicagoland area? 5,000. 44 Best Buys have affected lives far more, I think, than 5,000 plus churches. I I think we'd be hard-pressed to say we have made 114 times the impact of Best Buy in the day-to-day real life. The flesh and blood, everyday humdrum lives of the people of Chicagoland. And I think that's staggering to think about. 5,000 churches, but if those 5,000 churches ever forget, even for a week, that we are sent people, our presence will be utterly powerless, ineffective, meaningless. It will not reveal anything about the cross, except that a whole bunch of us once had some experience 
at some retreat or revival meeting or church service where we repented and snot fell to the ground from our nostrils and we were emotional for that day and we were real, real sorry for the things we'd done and we trusted Jesus. Aside from that, our churches do not reveal anything more of Christ if we ever forget that we're sent people. We are absolutely, from the beginning to the end, sent people. There's a buzzword that has made its way through a lot of churches, probably some of ours, that word missional. Have you heard it? Everyone's going bonkers over missional. They're tripping over themselves to find new ways to be missional. But one of the most incredible ways I've heard this idea of missional being framed for me was this. To be missional is to understand that the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission of God has a church. I think that's profound. I didn't come up with it. I really wish I had, but, you know, I I didn't come up with that. It's a profound thing to think about, that it's not like we're struggling to find our mission, but that God has always had a mission, and His mission has a church. If we join Him in it, we will in fact be the body of Christ. But if we don't join Him in it, we might be a body, but we might as well be in a Stephen Hawking body. Do you know what I'm saying? Unable to move. Paralyzed. Brilliant theory. Lots of mind. Simply an inability to activate even the simplest thing into reality. You know, I think it's a good thing for us on Good Friday to personalize the gospel. But we should never privatize the gospel and ever for a moment forget how vast the scope of God's love is for everyone. You know, isn't it interesting how difficult it is you come to a place like this where we're technically in the same family, most of us are technically from the same ethnicity, and yet you walk in and immediately you gravitate during the meet and greet, 30 minutes. Who did you talk to 90% of the time? Right? You talk to the people who are already at your church. Where were the pastors? Most of us are hiding out in the other room praying because we don't want to be out here with all you animals. And the truth is, even in this setting... It is so hard to break out of the tribalism that plagues the church. We can't even be sent to each other, and we're already in the family. I want you to think about what a barrier we have to overcome in order to fully identify with the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to make a second observation from this, and that is that we really reveal God's glory best when we stand united as a kingdom. It is in our corporate unity that the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ can actually be seen by the world. I don't think the world is looking for any more celebrities, superstars, Gandhis and Mother Teresas and people of a religiosity and a spirituality that makes them quake in their boots. I don't think they're impressed that they meet you or me or just a few of us and we're like, wow, that's a very interesting person. That person is really honest in their spirituality. That is not going to sway anyone. What it will leave them thinking is, well, I'll never be like that person. They're so intensely honest. They're so committed to social justice. They give away all their money. They don't seem attached to worldly goods. Good for them. Do you know when they see the glory of God? Is when they see an entire group of people, heterogeneous in our composition, as different as can be, hairless, hairy, tall, short, thin, not so thin, young, not so young, like me. People who are really into business and people who want to write music. And what they see is all of us together 
are profoundly marked by the same experience and the same Savior. And that sends ripples through whatever community your church happens to be in. I don't know why we're so busy trying to be impressive when really the glory of Christ can only be fully revealed and understood to the world by looking at the church. You know, on the longest night of his life, as Jesus is wrestling with the full divine knowledge of every excruciating lash that he would endure the next day, what do you think was the burden most heavy on his heart? Well, he got real honest for part of that prayer. He said, listen, Daddy, if there's any other way, I, mean, I don't know, if I could just say an incantation or maybe just lose one finger, I would be awesome. But in the end, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Very powerful words. But as he gets past the personal aspect of his struggle that night, what do you see emerging as the other great burden on the heart of Christ on the eve of his crucifixion? You can sum it up in one word, the unity of the church. Unity. That was obsessing his mind. He was not going to go to the cross to produce an entire kingdom of individuals who each in their own way, in their own space, intensely loved him. He was obsessed with the idea that after what he was about to do, everyone who would ever come to salvation through this finished work would be joined to one another in real unity. And I think what's remarkable is not just that that was what burdened him, but the true full scope of his concern for our unity. It was massive. Listen to what he says, so that every one of those who will believe in me because of their testimony. In fact, what he was praying for is that every believer spanning across all time, all centuries and generations, all ethnicities and all geographies, every person who could ever stand up in honesty and say, I follow Jesus Christ. Every one of us. His overarching concern was that in some real way we would look at each other and realize that we're connected. This wasn't some kind of shallow oneness that he was looking for. You know the kind where you stand in a circle and sing, you know, we are the world and we feel good and we high five and thank goodness I don't have to go through that stuff again. That was awkward, man. It was like 600 people. It was overwhelming. I go to a small church for a reason. I've worked hard to keep my church small because I like it that way, you know. We have those crowd deduction sermons where you just give it the, the honest thing and, and half the people leave next week and you have a nice little family again. And yet I look at Jesus and the, the sheer scope of his desire for unity, it should floor us. We're so ready to accept, high-five each other and accept this congratulations for one another that we did this one thing and that was awesome. It is only a start. We can't begin to understand how much it concerns God that his followers should think of each other as brother and sisters, as real family. And I don't know, maybe from your family experience, that word is not such a good word for you. Maybe the word family is a dirty word, but I want you to think about how you even know that your family was dysfunctional. Because somewhere deep down in each of us is embedded this idea of what family really should be, even if it isn't what we want it to be. That is the picture which is realizable in the church, even though by the, the family of your birth you could not see that happen. In Christ, under His banner, in His family, this very thing can happen. And until it happens, the cross has not made its full impact on the human race. It's okay that you're saved. I'm so glad for that. 
But until the glory of the cross is seen rippling through every community in the body of Christ, the cross is still just an empty symbol to most of humanity. Now, if that's the theory or the blueprint, I think most of us can admit that the reality hasn't looked quite like that. Even in our own churches, it's painfully difficult to agree on most things. Now, we're going through a huge change in our church right now, and it's truly amazing how many differences of opinion are possible about every small thing. Even things you think are inconsequential, some people start getting like, they quiver, their lips shake, and they get emotional, and, and I'm, I'm genuinely surprised by that. The truth is, and especially, I think, well, maybe not especially, but certainly, if you grew up in the Asian church, particularly in the Korean church, you probably lived through or witnessed firsthand an ugly, painful church conflict at some point in your life. I, I don't know if I want to really do this. I was toying around with the idea of having you raise your hand if you had to witness some painful split like that. It got to the point where I thought that was the Korean church multiplication strategy. You have a big fight and out of one church, you have two churches all of a sudden. It's awesome. That's how we double every year. I heard some ridiculous figure that like there are 500 churches, Korean churches in Chicagoland. And the reason I say it's ridiculous is because... I couldn't even name more than 15, I think. How could there be so many and I don't even know who they are? And if I don't know them, fat chance I'm going to know a lot of the other Hispanic churches or African American churches or Cambodian churches. I think what a fractured picture we must present to the world. You know, obviously Koreans don't have a monopoly on church splits, so I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Everybody's corrupted. Everybody fights. And this is really the, the picture that gets all the press, all the airtime, isn't it? Does anybody ever see the ripple going across Chicagoland when a church is doing really well? Do you think this will make headline news? The fact that all these churches did Good Friday together? Probably will be talking about it, but it wouldn't get nearly as much airtime as if we all had a huge fight and Pastor Brad and I duked it out in the parking lot and tell him you got to preach and all that stuff. That would get a lot of press. The newspapers would write that up. They would love it. Truth is that that has to be more the reality. Is that things like this are the norm and not the exception for us in our experience as a church. I think the reason so many people church hop because somewhere deep in the honest layer of their soul, there's a desire for more than my little tribe. My little ingrown backwards family of kissing cousins who after we get to know each other, we get to know each other some more. And after that, we get to know each other some more. And then I change so that you can have a different experience of getting to know me some more. That's just so messed up if you think about it. I think we're leaving churches that frankly we're bored at how small Christendom and the kingdom become the longer you stay at most churches. If you could imagine with me that Chicagoland and all the churches are like the pieces of glass that make up a stained glass mosaic, then I'll tell you this. We all, each of us, are distinguishable as a separate piece of glass. We each have our own color, our shape, our size. But when you put us all together and zoom out, there is no discernible picture that emerges. It's just a bunch of pieces of glass taped next to each other, and everyone goes, I don't get it. 
It's like modern art. You, you, you can pretend you get it. You're like, oh my goodness, that's profound. That's, that's just your way of saying you're too insecure to go, this guy has no talent. He just has a lot of broken glass. Is that the picture we're presenting to Chicagoland? Because frankly, can I just tell you, I'm a little tired of all of us going across the ocean, spending tens of thousands to reach all of them over there, and I don't think we've made even a splash in our own city. Amen? If we haven't even turned Chicagoland upside down, what are you really going to do in Beijing or Addis Ababa or Dubai, wherever else you're going to go? I mean, honestly, and that's not to poo-poo on missions. That's to say that same zeal we show overseas, it better start activating right here among us. Because this is our city. Even if you live in the burbs, this is our city. And what Jesus said was, if this happens, if this level of unity will be granted by the Father through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, then he says, look, the world will believe that God sent Jesus. He says this, basically, that the unity of the church is the greatest apologetic for the gospel. You think you're going to argue with somebody all about creation versus evolutionism and all that, and they're going to bow before Christ? If Jesus and His finished work on the cross cannot even unite us, how will they ever believe it will transform them? Until they see us becoming a family, the gospel will not have its full power in the eyes of the world. This is not a cool gimmick It's not an excellent time saver for busy pastors who need to get ready for Easter and don't have time for Good Friday. This took more work in the end than any of us imagined it would, right? We thought we're going to get away with it. We're doing it all together. It was like eight times the work of anything we would have done in our own churches. But what a joyful result happens when we decide to take the kingdom of God seriously. When we tell God in action that the kingdom isn't just a great idea in theory, it will be the only picture of the church that will burn in our hearts and guide us as a blueprint. Anything short of this is not church. It's the Scottish Highlands and a bunch of warring tribes and men wearing kilts, beaten on their chest, proving they're stronger than the next guy. Is that all we're going to be? Or will we be a kingdom united? That's got to start to mean more and more and more and more. Sharing of resources and information and, and the wealth of all that is here. The giftedness, the openness to accept help from another church without feeling like you've got to lose your dignity or they might steal your sheep. In the end, when the water in the harbor rises, all the boats rise together. Isn't that true? Well, before I wear out my welcome and lose some of you, let me just wrap up, all right? And here's how I think we can wrap up. I'll give you one last thought. When you look at verse 22, here's what Jesus says. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one. I want you to note that Jesus' view of Christian perfection is not an individual finally getting victory over all his moral hang-ups. Christian perfection is seen in the unity of the body. Then, he says, consequence, then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me.
That word glory is so important. It's one of the, literally the heaviest words that you can read in the Bible. And almost every time it appears in Scripture, it has to do with the direct, tangible, visible presence of God. Meaning this, when somebody was shining in their face and there was glory, what was being reflected was the glory of God's presence rubbing off. Glory was always tied to the presence of God. I think this is what Jesus is saying. I have given them the capacity to enjoy your presence so that through that presence the result would be unity among them. Every time I get closer to Christ, the net result, if it was a genuine closeness to Christ, is that I should start to draw closer to you. You want to know if your revival is for real? If you start going, I love Jesus, but these other people are getting more and more on my nerves. I love Jesus, but I can't stand my church anymore. It's like I've outgrown them. I've out-spiritualized them. You haven't done anything but delude yourself. That's not God that you met. That's not revival you're experiencing because the glory of God, whenever it settles among a people, has as its Christ-given aim the unity of all who experience that glory. If you love God and you can't stand people, let me introduce you to God. You may think you love Him, but you might not even know Him. I don't believe Christianity is a faith that can be understood. It's it's not even intelligible by looking at a single person. You cannot understand or recognize Christianity until you've seen it in a group. Think about the staggering number, proportion of commands given to us in Scripture that are impossible to obey all by yourself. What is the greatest command, folks? Love God. Maybe you could do that all by yourself. But what's the second one? And Jesus wouldn't be roped into this little trick. And the second one, even though you only asked for one, the second one is inseparable from the first one. You will love people as you love yourself. Tell me how you love all by your lonesome. Did you ever see a person curled up in the corner of a room going, I just so love. I, don't touch me. Don't even talk to me. I'm so in love right now. If you're a thinking person, what's the question you ask? Who do you love? Because love is a transitive verb. It demands an object. You can't just be full of love. You must love someone. That's the nature of all of the Christian faith, if you think about it. You can't do any of it in solitary confinement. It requires community to even be recognizable as distinctly Christian. And if that's the case, then what we're doing here tonight, I believe, brings tremendous glory and pleasure to Jesus Christ. If this is the first time we've worshipped outside of the confines of our own tribe and family, then I believe this is the Good Friday service in your lifetime which most delighted the heart of Christ. And as he hangs from that cross in our mind's eye, he's smiling because his prayers were answered in a moment like tonight. This is the picture that all of us have been yearning for and could never see simply in our own local church because Christianity demands something much bigger than that picture. Now, I'm glad we have our own local churches. I'm glad for all the wonderful stories that are shared every month when your pastors get together and we just tell the stories of what God's doing. 
But I think this needs to be more of a regular occurrence. Do you know, I, I was sitting there getting ready for worship, and Pastor Anson from Bethel plopped down next to me, and I looked at him, and, and I couldn't remember his name. I had a senior moment. I'm like, and that's so messed up because I know Anson. He's my friend, my brother. And you know what that tells me? We need to see each other more, man. <laughs> How is it that we could be ministering fellow under-shepherds in the same city and that, that kind of a moment could happen? It tells me some things about myself, of course. But it also tells me that days like this need to be far more common among us than they are. And it's my heartfelt prayer. I know I speak for the other pastors as well. When, when we hope that we will bring great honor to Jesus Christ by seeing things like this become the rule rather than the exception in Chicagoland. A lot of people didn't come tonight. And here's the mumbling I heard, at least among my people. I don't know if I want to go to this huge meet and greet and... You know, all that stuff. People are distracting on Good Friday. It should be somber and quiet and private and just us in a dark room. And I didn't want to come to this big old crowd and have to mingle over a cup of juice with some strangers. And I heard that and I understood it. But isn't it ironic that the very people who were being framed as a distraction, well, Jesus on the cross would have seen as pretty much the whole point. You weren't supposed to come here tonight to be blessed all by yourself. This thing, it is the point. It is the church. It is the glory of God. Don't ever let that leak out of you. This is the body of Christ. And two days from now, you'll worship in your local chapter. But this is one body. Let's never forget. I want to invite you Bow with me just for a brief time of responsive prayer. Almost every other Good Friday in my life, I've walked away from having preached or heard a sermon that called me to a deep individual reflection. I hope that the Lord's granted you some quiet time to already do some of that today. If He hasn't, then I would encourage you not to go to bed right away, but spend some time doing just that later on. But as we respond to Jesus' prayer recorded for us in John 17, don't you think it makes a lot of sense for us to pray for the unity of his body, which weighed so heavily on his heart? And I want us to begin simply by praying this. This, this unity we're talking about is not the domain, the job of some leadership team. But the truth is, something in you and me individually actively can work against the broader unity of the church. Maybe it's insecurity, social awkwardness. Maybe you're just tired and you've got enough friends and you're not looking for any more. Maybe it's just ignorance. You didn't realize how important this was to God. But whatever the case, I think it's right for us to begin at the individual level and say, God, what is it in me that needs to be moved so that I can join you in this heartfelt desire to see the unity of the church? What's got to change in me? Can we just pray that? I just want to give us a couple minutes of quiet and, and let's go to God and pray that. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. 
If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.